As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three expert witnesses on one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. At the end of the Arabian Peninsula, bordering the deserts of Saudi Arabia and Oman, lies the home of the world's worst humanitarian crisis of our time. Yemen, a sparse, mountainous desert country, has been raging with civil war for the last five years. Hundreds of thousands have been killed in the fighting, and the country is tearing itself into increasingly smaller pieces. The vortex of war has dragged in countries from all over the world, including Bahrain, the UK, and the USA, just to name a few. But until this week, it seemed to be going nowhere. Just another Middle Eastern quagmire for the West to increasingly be dragged into. That was until this week where tenuous peace talks were announced between Saudi Arabia and Yemen. But how did we arrive at this point? How did the war go for so long? Why was the West dragged in? And why is this civil war involving other countries? Well, for that, we turn to our first witness. Part 1. A country built on quicksand. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The first time I walked out of the airport in Yemen was in 1973, and I walked out in a place called Aden, which had been the capital or the main place where the Brits had been involved, and at the time when I turned up there, it was the capital of what was the only socialist country in the Arab world. Helen Lackner is a French writer, academic, and researcher mostly known for her work on the Middle East, with Yemen in particular. She's an author of many books, including Yemen in Crisis, which won the Grand Prix of Literary Associations in 2018. She is the foremost expert in Yemen, and she joins us today. But um, Aden is very different from other cities and the rest of Yemen in the sense that it was... It was a British colony. It wasn't even the British protectorate. So it was, it had been until 1967 
the capital, the, the you know, the Aden colony and a major staging post on the route to India. So it had been a very important place in the British colonial system. So for people who might not know much about the country of Yemen, can you give a bit of a summary on the geography of the country? Yeah. Well, the geography of Yemen is extremely varied, and I think that's an important thing to remember. And because of the variations in the geography, there's areas which have very high population densities, and that's really what you could call the, the backbone of the country, which is just east of the Red Sea coast, where you have these very high mountains that go up to 3,000 meters altitude. And so you have this mountainous area which grabs the monsoon and which are much more, which have a lot more rainfall than anywhere else in the country, which is the area with the highest population density. And obviously, therefore, the area which had the most, it had rain-fed agriculture, it had, you know, livable agriculture. And you have, you know, major cities are basically Sana'a, Hodeida, Taiz, Aden, and to a lesser extent, Mukalla. And that's it. You don't have other major cities other than that. You have, you know, reasonably largish towns. Um, generally, you still have basically distances between uh, towns that go back to the days of the desert frankincense route. So you have basically staging posts from the caravans. So you'll have some kind of, of market stroke staging post approximately every 30 to 50 kilometers from each other. Again, depending on, you know, you don't do that in the desert. But it's also one thing that you do need to remember whenever looking at anything to do with Yemen is to remember that it still has about 70% of its population rural. It still is a very largely rural economy and rural society. So, so the geography of the country, you know, has a very strong determining Im impact on the way the country, the population lives and on, on it, on, both on population distribution and on economic activities that people have. So the single unified country of Yemen as we know it hasn't existed for very long at all. In fact, before 1990, it was two separate countries. Uh, can you explain why that is? Yeah, well, basically, you had the two, the border between what was in the very, in the past, the Imamate and later on the Yemen Arab Republic, which was established in 1962 on the one hand, and on the other, Aden, the British colony of Aden and its protectorates, was established in about 1932 or 34, I can't remember exactly. Um, basically because the imamate considered that all of Yemen was theirs and the Brits really wanted to maintain you know, their border. But again, they had the, the, the basic border that existed uh, until 1990 was established in the 30s between, the, between London, the British colonial power, and the imamate who had taken over control of the capital in Sama'a until, you know, after the Ottomans left in 1918. So basically, you had these two states until 1990. And from 1978 onwards, the northern part, the Yemen Arab Republic, was ruled by Ali Abdullah Saleh. And in the south, you had the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which was established after the departure of the British. You'd had about four years of civil war 
bit, uh, sorry, of anti-colonial war, of liberation war between 63 and 67, at the end of which included also an internal battle between two major uh, fronts that wanted to take over from Britain. And the one that got the power in the end was the National Liberation Front, which later on became the Yemeni Socialist Party, which was basically a Soviet-aligned um, regime which tried to introduce various forms, or well, a form of socialism in the country. In the 80s, um, there, there were no, any number of problems within the regimes, both in the north and in the south. And after 1986, there was when there was another big conflict in the south, an internal sort of conflict within the Yemeni Socialist Party. The regime very much lost credibility. At the same time, things were becoming quite difficult in Sana'a because Ali Abdullah Saleh was becoming, you know, more autocratic and not providing what people were expecting. And in Basically, having fought two wars between them in 1972 and 1979, by the late 80s, they were faced, the two regimes were faced with the options of either fighting each other or getting together. And they decided to get together. And so in 1990, you had unification and the establishment of the Republic of Yemen. So at this point, the two Yemens have merged into one country, but there's still huge fault lines between the two factions, particularly toward Saudi Arabia and the government uh, in Riyadh. Um, So what was the Saudi relationship like between the former Emirati-led government of North Yemen based in Sana'a and the former communist government based in Aden? Okay, well, I mean, one thing you have to always remember when you're dealing with Yemen is that you will find a number of incredibly contradictory and weird situations. I mean, let's start with Aden because that's the easy one. You know, Aden had been the socialist or you use the word communist country in the in Arabia. It was obviously detested by the Saudi regime. But... Now, because the Saudis weren't particularly keen on unity, they supported the separatist movement in 1994. And although they didn't recognize it diplomatically, they still, you know, they encouraged the separatist movement. And those were the same leaders whom they had, you know, been totally against 10 years earlier. So, so you can see a clear ambiguity there. The situation in Sama is, you know, very different. I mean, the relationship between the Saudi regime and the regime in Sama has been ambiguous for a very long time. The Saudis have been concerned about Yemen and in a sense, I mean, I find it difficult to really understand because I don't think it's rational, but, you know, they, they, they regard Yemen as a threat and have done for a long, long time. I mean, basically, for the last 30, 40, 50 years. So what the the tactic that was used in the 90s, it was for the, the Saudi regime is on the one hand, it financed the Yemen state that was after unification or even before it, from the 80s and 90s. So it simultaneously financed the Yemeni states and financed the groups that were against, that were in a sense, rival to the states. And in, in the north, this was basically the major big tribal, the two big tribal confederations or certain major tribal leaders. 
so that the 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 the, the idea was the usual divide and rule prevent the state from being really strong by by creating a sort of set of rival type of institutions so it was a very ambiguous relationship but yemen has been dependent on or the yemeni regimes have been dependent on finance from saudi arabia basically for at service since the end of the 1960s to 70 civil war so you're suggesting this might be saudi arabia's chickens coming home to roost after spending so long and so much money trying to destabilize the country I mean, my summary of the Saudi position, which I think is shared by many, is that Saudi always wanted Yemen to be strong enough not to be a threat and weak enough not to be a threat. So in a sense, the current situation is not satisfactory from that point of view because it's become too weak in a, as, as a country. So in 2011, a political asteroid hits the Middle East, beginning what would be known as the Arab Spring. Revolutions broke out all over the Middle East and it toppled governments in Tunisia, Libya, and even ended the decades-long rule of Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak. I mean, it's pretty hard to convey how earth-shattering these events are for the Middle East, but how do they affect Yemen? Yemen was very much at the heart of it. I mean, you had, you'd had a significant rise in discontent from about 2000 onwards. Um, in the, that decade, you'd had the rise of the Houthi movement, which had, you know, from 2004 to 2010, had a series of six wars against the Saleh regime. You'd had the rise of the Southern Separatist movement. I mean, you know, post-1994 to 2007, anger and frustration in the South continued for a whole host of reasons, which, again, you know, we could spend a lot of time discussing. But the Southern Separatist movement re-emerged strongly in 2007. You had a very widespread dissatisfaction throughout the country by most people, lack of jobs, lack of income, uh, bad quality education, you know, basic, the main social and economic frustrations that you've had everywhere in the Arab world and it's re-emerging again, you know, now in different countries. Now, what happened in early 2011 and that, uh, you know, with what happened in Tunisia and Egypt is that it basically gave an, an impulse for this movement to explode much in a much bigger way than it had done before. I mean, I, I remember being in Samar when the, the day Mubarak fell. And, you know, it was about six in the evening in summer when we heard about it. And just suddenly, you know, you could hear the whole city rising. I mean, it was just incredible, you know, car horns, shouting, screaming. I mean, it just, you, you, you know, there's a whole event going on and starting. And you'd already had, you know, serious sit-ins going on and live-ins going on for, you know, for quite a few weeks already at that time. So... It was basically an explosion of frustration and and the hope. I mean, I think what 2011 showed in Yemen and elsewhere, in Syria as well at that time, is hope that um, that you could change the regime and get an improved situation. But basically what happened is that I was on the 18th of March. There was a, a massacre when the Salas forces basically killed a lot of people on the Friday demonstrations they had every friday they had big marches and demonstrations after prayers which were held on this main big road 
And the what happened also in the and that split the regime. So you had a whole section of the military and of the political parties that were associated with Saleh to some extent, basically joining the revolution. And that all affected the nature of the revolution in the street, but it also led to the international community, basically, you know, Saudi Emirates, the UN, the Brits, the Americans and everybody thinking that we, you know, we've got to get a transition. So they pushed for a transition deal and the introduction of a transitional regime. Um, and you had then during this transition period, which was also supposed to be assisted by the international committee with very considerable, you know, they, they pledged eight point seven four eight point seven $8.7 billion of economic assistance and things of that kind, which should have contributed to improving living conditions and sorting out, you know, social infrastructure as well as create jobs and which basically never really materialized. You know, it was supposed to solve a lot of things and it was supposedly run or managed with UN support and other international support. And I think it's one of the elements where the UN, you know, really abysmally failed because they should have done things very, very differently. So unlike the political changes in Egypt and Tunisia, there isn't huge progress in Yemen. So all the tensions are there and the government can't fix it, nor could the UN fix it. So no one's really happy at this point. But where does that lead? Uh, Basically, the situation in the country continued to deteriorate. People had less and less services and were more and more frustrated. And so when the National Dialogue Conference collapsed, uh, by that time, well, it didn't collapse, sorry, it ended formally, it didn't, sorry, correct that, because it definitely did not collapse. It just ended normally. But what had happened by then is that the Houthis had, here again, a contradiction to get used to. By that time, were in alliance with Ali Abdullah Saleh. Who at this point is the deposed president of Yemen. And they gradually took over in 2014. They took over different parts of the country finally taking over summer in in October. And so that's basically by that time you you had the elements for the war to start. The Houthis, who we will talk about a bit later on, gave up on the peace talks and using their forces and forces loyal to ex-President Saleh, declared war and started pushing southwards into the heart of Yemen in an attempt to gain control of the country. Can you elaborate a bit on that first big push by the Houthis that kicked off the Yemeni civil war we know today? Well, what happened is that between 2011 and 2013, they gradually expanded their influence and taking over the areas very near their their homeland. So if you look at the map, it's basically, you know, all of their governorate of Saada and bits of the neighboring governorates. But what happened in 2014 is that they expand, they moved south very quickly, first to Amran and then to Sama. And there was some fighting, but very little fighting, because most of the military forces were allied, were still Saleh's forces, and by that time he was allied with the Houthis. So there was limited fighting, mainly in, in Amran in June, if I remember rightly, the month. But by the time they got to Sama in August, September, there was no, there was practically no resistance because the the Saleh people just sat in their encampments or at home or whatever and let the Houthis take over when they weren't actually working with them. 
they they came it came to a point where basically the Houthis put an agreement under Hadi's nose, which was basically surrender. With Hadi being Salah's ex-vice president and current president of the UN-recognized government in Yemen. You know, they're saying that they would, I mean, it was just a surrender document and he had the two options, you know, resign or sign. And at that time he took the, you know, the best option, which is that he resigned and his government resigned and then they were put under house arrest. And then they escaped and set up their temporary capital in Aden and then the Saudis moved in. I mean, they wrote a letter to the Saudis asking them to to move in. I mean, to stop supporting the legitimate regime. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Yemen, a country that had only recently been put together, is now tearing itself apart. The difference this time being that this war is now dragging in more and more of the international community. The Houthis now control the capital Sana'a, the port city of Hodeidah on the Red Sea, and are trying to push further and further into the country. This hasn't given them the quick victory they hoped for, but it has given them what the UN terms as the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. It's hard for me to explain what it's like on the ground there. So instead, we turn to our next guest. Part two. Islands in the desert. My first impression, I had just come from Cairo and I had lived in Cairo for two years after university. Um, And Yemen was so much less developed than Cairo. I mean, it was just like night and day. Um, And I was a bit shocked by how isolated Sana'a felt when I first got there, like it existed in its own little world. But very quickly, I was brought into the warmth of Yemenis, I would say. I mean, for a country that experiences so much conflict, there is a true warmth to the culture there. Laura Kazanov is a freelance journalist who reports for the New York Times on Yemen and the Middle East. Laura's work has also appeared in The Economist and The Washington Monthly as well as her own book, Don't Be Afraid of the Bullets. She joins us today. Life in Saddam, when I first lived there, you know, I took taxis, I went around by myself. It wasn't, it wasn't like a scary Yemen that I think would probably exist in most people's imagination. What makes this conflict so difficult to cover is the fact that there are so many competing forces in the war, all with wildly different goals, to put it mildly. Can you give us a rundown on all the major players in this one? Yeah, I mean, it's so there's so many players in the war in Yemen. So it's like, it's hard to even like pick. I mean, the main ones obviously are that, well, firstly, the Houthis, um, the rebels who existed in Northern Yemen. They sort of came out of the fall of the Imamates. And during the Arab Spring protests, the Houthis sort of used the power vacuum to expand their territory and take up more land. And particularly they were fighting 
sort of the group in Yemen that was aligned with the, Islam, the uh, Islamist party in Yemen, which is known as Islah. Um, that Islamist party is also seen as being in line with the current president of Yemen, who is Abdul Rabdu Mansur Hadi. And when I say Islamist party, it's not like they're all super religious and like extremists or things like that. It really runs the gamut. So you have the Houthi rebels and they've still control of the capital in northern Yemen to this day. You have the government of Hadi, so they're aligned also with these, um, with the Islamists in Yemen. And then, oh my gosh, then you also obviously have Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which were engaged, who were engaged in the bombing campaign against the Houthis. Now they're sort of working in partnership with the Yemeni government. The UAE, up until now, though that might be changing, and Saudi Arabia, certainly control a lot of South Yemen. Um, that part that's technically in under control of the government of Hadi's government is actually being controlled for the most part by those other Gulf nation states. Then of course, in the South as well, you have groups that are the sort of fundamentalist extremist groups like Al Qaeda and ISIS. Now the UAE has made headway against those groups over the past few years. The groups, groups used to control territory in the UAE um, sort of worked with certain groups in Yemen to push those more extremist groups out, but they're still there. I mean, the other thing is you have is you have the Southern separatists in Yemen. These are groups who want the reestablishment of South Yemen, which, you know, South and North Yemen um, combined to form the country that there is today after the fall of the Soviet Union, because South Yemen was a Marxist state that was sort of under the influence of the Soviet Union. So anyway, then you have Southern separatists. And, and, and that, there's like lots of Southern separatists. They were kind of supported by the UAE. Um, now they have just struck a deal with the Yemeni government, but they are quite strong in Southern Yemen as well. And they're not really like extremists uh, or anything like that. I mean, you know, some of them are sort, they're sort of the vestiges of this old socialist Marxist, well, it was actually a Marxist state. But it, 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 it's quite complicated. You have lots of competing interests when it comes to Yemen. And, it's, and that's all obviously why it's difficult for outside audiences to sort of get a handle on the conflict because it's not just Saudi Arabia versus the Houthi rebels or anything like that. There's a lot, basically when Saleh stepped down, there were lots of conflicts bubbling up in the country when he was in power and he barely kept a lid on them. But then when he stepped down and Hadi became president in 2012, all of those conflicts totally bubbled up and Hadi has been a very incompetent president and that's part of the reason why. And how is the USA involved in all of this? The US has been, you know, providing weapons, of course, uh, to Saudi Arabia. Um, so, so the, you know, the US supplies weapons to Saudi, but then they also had been, I'm not sure quite the extent to it now, but they had been providing intelligence to Saudi as well in its war against the Houthis. Um, though I do think that the US, uh, particularly under Obama, was frustrated with Saudi, though, you know, you don't stop. The problem is, is that US-Saudi relationship is so strong, something like this isn't gonna stop it. So we're never gonna, you know, or it seems highly unlikely the US is gonna stop giving weapons to Saudi Arabia unless there's some sort of monumental change uh, selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. And it's, um, and from there, it just sort of, you know, feeds this war and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, there also are definitely people within the Trump administration who are severe, what do you call it, you know, paranoid about Iran. So, you know, to an extent that seems quite wacky. And I think that, you know, so there's not really the impetus to, to, to force Saudi or try to pressure 
pressure Saudi to stop its war and destruction against the Houthis because, you know, there's a lot of people in the administration who are so paranoid about Iran. And of course, the Houthis are aligned with Iran. The exact, that doesn't mean that they're totally Iranian puppets by any means, but they certainly are aligned with Iran, which is, of course, why Saudi Arabia was, um, you know, very alarmed when the Houthis gained control and took control of Sana'a um, because they saw it as a direct threat from Iran on their southern coast. So why is Saudi Arabia so involved in this? You know, why are they willing to lose so much blood and treasure over Yemen? From the onset, it seems like it was paranoia about, um, you know, the Houthis and, the, the, you know, the Houthis being aligned with Iran and Iran sort of getting a foothold in Yemen's southern border or in Saudi's um, southern border. Uh, and now, of course, the Houthis are, you know, launching attacks into Saudi Arabia. So for Saudi kind of to just like step down and step back, I mean, they have a they have a, you know, an entity to their south that's at war with them that is attacking them. So, it, 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 you know, it, but, but for like why, you know, throughout all these years, if they just continue to do it, continue to do it, I mean, that it's it's kind of hard to see because what we know is that it just seems impossible that the saudis are going to win this war against the houthis it's this classic situation of like you know the soviet union in afghanistan when you had mujahideen fighting the the, the mujahideen you know had they knew it was their land if they knew the mountains it's this sort of thing it's like the u.s and iraq you know you have this problem happen over and over again saudi houthis know northern yemen they have a lot of weapons. They have control of northern Yemen. They know the mountains. I mean, how, how, with aside from just bombing all of northern Yemen to complete dust, how is Saudi going to win? It seems impossible. Yet, why do they continue? Is it a pride issue? Is it that it's not actually that big of a deal for them to continue this war? I, I'm unsure. It does seem like, you know, the Saudis are currently, you know, they have sort of they have some control in southern Yemen at the moment. And do they just want Yemen completely under their control and they're not going to stop until that happens? So, so much of this war's fighting has been centered around the port city of Hudaydah on the west coast of Yemen, which is currently controlled by the Houthis. Why are the Saudis fighting so hard to take back control of this port? Hudaydah is the Houthis' only port. So I would imagine that Hudaydah is quite important to the Houthis for that reason. Um, and then, of course, for the Arab countries, gaining control of Hudaydah sort of corners the Houthis. They now have no access to a port. So it's very important, I imagine, for that reason as well. So the Iranians are increasingly becoming more and more involved in the war, you know, supplying materials and arms to the Houthis uh, in their struggle. Why do you think Iran is getting involved in this one? When I was in Yemen in 2012 and the... Um, and then and, and when Saleh had just stepped down and Hadi became president, Iran was trying to increase its influence in Yemen left and right. So they were trying to increase their influence in southern Yemen amongst the southern separatists. They were trying, they had already this relationship with the Houthis, but they were also trying with some Yemeni activists and really pro-democracy activists and young activists. These activists were being flown to Tehran, they were being flown to Lebanon and be, being given media training by Hezbollah. And it was very, very interesting that this was happening. I mean, it, it's, I spoke with people who were flown to Tehran. So it, and people who 
seemed quite liberal. We're not connected to the Houthis at all. Um, but they started to sort of, these people then had a bit of an Iranian um, angle to the way that they looked at global politics. And that was also, that was, you know, quite interesting. It's like the soft power thing. You can think of it a bit in the way that, you know, Russia with Russia today, you know, is, is trying enticing, you know, um, maybe well-intentioned progressive thinkers watch Russia today and maybe start to think of the Ukraine conflict with a little bit of a Russian bent. Um, you know, I mean, there's a historical rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran and what more way to threaten Saudi Arabia than have Iranian influence in northern Yemen, which is right on the Saudi border and, and makes Saudi very paranoid. So out of the combatants, who has the momentum on their side at the moment? I see, you know, from the outside, it seems like a bit of a stalemate, I would say. Um, maybe I wouldn't say that one is gaining ground and one is, is losing ground. Certainly in South Yemen, the Southern separatists are were very much gained ground in that they seized Aden. Um, and then the negotiate, negotiations began in Riyadh between the Southern, the council that sort of rules the Southern separatists and the Yemeni government. With regards to Northern Yemen and the Houthis versus Saudi Arabia, that it just doesn't seem like the war, it doesn't seem like any, any side is gonna come up ahead. I mean, the Houthis seem to be in some ways that you know launching the attacks into saudi you know their alleged striking down of drones like this sort of thing and that way they seem to be getting stronger in a way um you know sometimes you get reports of saudi arabia and the arab coalition making progress um in regards to sort of the front lines in western yemen sometimes the houthis make progress it just it just it seems like you know it's one step forward two steps back i don't know it just, it, it doesn't it doesn't seem like either side's going to come out ahead which is really horribly sad for Yemen because it just means the war is going to continue because if either side isn't sort of the sides don't seem at this point though obviously anything could change they don't seem willing to sort of come to a negotiating table with regards to peace so anytime that happens just just fighting breaks out again and the bombings start again so um you know that that is it's, it's the people who are suffering the most obviously are you know, the, the Yemeni people, particularly those living in the north under the area that's under Houthi control, or the ones who are at the front lines of the fighting, of course, as well, both in the west and also in Taz, in central Yemen. So the situation in Yemen is being called the worst humanitarian crisis of our time. You know, how bad is it on the ground there? The hunger issue, hunger crisis issue is not the right word to use. The hunger crisis in Yemen, which, you know, at times seems to border on famine, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's some of the worst in the world. And also coupled with that, you have cholera outbreaks every once in a while. You have, you know, the fact that there's hardly functioning hospitals. You have a region of the country that has very little access to anything from the outside world. Um, and that's also people aren't getting paid because, you know, a lot of people were paid by government salaries from before, um, and would, and so obviously there was some sort of, there was some international business in Yemen, but that's hardly happening now under the Houthis. So you have, you know, people aren't getting their salaries, and when even there's food on the shelves in grocery stores, people can't afford to buy it. People can't afford the price of petrol to get to the hospital when they have someone sick. So it, you have just sort of these compounding issues of this place that's completely closed off, um, which also, of course, is why we were talking about Hudaydah in the West, why that's very important for the Houthis. You have this place that's completely closed off that 
has you know grave medical issues, that has a hunger issue, a uh, hunger crisis, if, and that is, um, I mean, it, that that's what creates the sort of humanitarian crisis that we hear about and see about on the news, and that is right, you know, rightly so. One of the worst things we can that we see in the world today. This conflict in Yemen is costing its combatant countries billions and billions of dollars, and hundreds of thousands of lives are being lost in a quagmire that just gets deeper and deeper. So why go through all this? Why is Yemen so important to Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the West? We speak to our next guest to find out. Part 3, where water is thicker than oil. The thing about Yemen, the first thing anyone should know about Yemen is it is quite possibly the, the most complicated country on the planet. It is so difficult to, in a concise way, explain the political, military, cultural, religious, etc. Uh, dimensions of Yemen. Thomas Small is one of the biggest experts when it comes to the Middle East, with a first-class degree in Arabic and Islamic studies. He wrote the book Path of Blood and also co-hosted the podcast series Conflicted alongside MI6 agent Eamon Dean. Not to mention the guy's also won various BAFTAs and RTS awards for his documentaries on the subject. Well, Yemen right now has been in the grips of a full-blown civil war for about five years, actually five years this month. It's been something like a stalemate for a long time, largely because the geography of Yemen uh, really works against any uh, final military solution there. Um, the humanitarian crisis as a result of this conflict is acute. Um, it has spilled over into wider regional and even global geopolitical um, considerations or geopolitical objectives. So in your opinion, politically between the two sides, what is the difference between, let's say, the Houthis and the government forces? The Houthis are a rebel group based in the north of Yemen. They uh, are religious fanatics, religious fundamentalists. They have organized themselves uh, very similar to the way Hezbollah in Lebanon have organized themselves. And like Hezbollah, which is an Iranian proxy in Lebanon, the Houthis have been accused of being an Iranian proxy in Yemen. Uh, Iran is a very uh, agile operator in its regional geopolitics and direct evidence of Iranian logistical, financial or military support to the Houthis is not thick on the ground. However, I would say most analysts know that there is a lot of truth in the allegation that, like Hezbollah, the Houthis are an Iranian proxy in Yemen. And what about the government forces loyal to Hadi? Uh, even at the best of times, Yemen was not a centralized state, and its military apparatus was not like a conventional militaries. It was largely organized along tribal lines. Yemen is an incredibly tribal society. And in addition to the standard military, throughout the country there were tribal militias that were on and on again, off again, allied to the central government. So Hadi, the president of, of Yemen, as recognized by the UN, has always been slightly on the back foot when it comes to the military. He has a lot of, uh, of support largely in the south, 
of the country from which he comes and which always existed in a very uncomfortable relationship with the, the north, with the capital, where most of the population live. So something not talked about a lot is Al-Qaeda's presence in Yemen. You know, they actually at one point had a very large foothold in the country's east. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that a bit. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula is an offshoot of the larger Al-Qaeda movement. Uh, Yemen was a a breeding ground for Islamic terrorism well before 9-11, in fact, from the early 90s onwards. Uh, People might remember that a year before 9-11, there was a bombing in the port of Aden on a a United States military vessel, the USS Cole, uh, which was the first uh, kind of salvo in, uh, in, in, in Al-Qaeda's attack against American interests. Uh, Yemen has always been, as I said before, sort of suitable for terrorism because of its mountainous uh, terrain, because the central government did not have much control over the periphery. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula achieved something unique in 2014-2015 when, as a result of the instability of the Arab Spring era, they were able to conquer large swathes of eastern, the arid eastern, southeastern part of Yemen. For the first time, an Al-Qaeda offshoot uh, successfully conquered territory, a large enough territory to begin establishing there something like state structures. When they conquered the city of Al-Mukalla in the southeast and were able to enter into Um, relationships with local tribal actors who swore them their allegiance and in general they they conquered uh, a large swathe of the of the southeast of the country their experience of building something like nascent state structures there would have eventually bear fruit when we saw isis take over large parts of iraq and syria and form a state there but al-qaeda in the arabian peninsula did it first Uh, an islamic an islamic terror group that conquered territory and founded something like a state now more recently, they have been uh, heavily uh, fought back by, obviously, American forces in, in, co- in uh, cooperation with Saudi and particularly Emirati forces on the ground. So at the moment, Al-Qaeda in Yemen is sort of on the back foot, but they're still there. With Saudi Arabia in the West funding the Hadi government and Iran funding the Houthi government, you could almost call it a bit of a Middle Eastern Cold War going on. Do you think that's a fair analogy? It is often called that, yes. Uh, although the truth is, it's it's more or less a hot war, as far as I can tell. Uh, obviously, there are actual wars raging all around the region, and though Saudi Arabia has not launched any direct military attacks on Iran, a couple of months ago, as is widely known, Iran either most likely directly or possibly through its proxies in southern Iraq did launch an attack on the Abqaiq oil facility in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a war that is more hot than cold, I would say. So what are the aims of Iran? Why are they being so antagonistic in this conflict? Well, that, in order to answer that question, I'm afraid we'll have to return to the fateful year of 1979, when the Iranian revolution overthrew the Shah there and the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power uh, in the in the in the years that followed, uh, Iran adopted a new constitution. It changed its name to the Islamic Republic of Iran, and in its constitution, it is pledged to spread the revolution. Now, people often underplay this part of the Iranian uh, phenomenon, but it is absolutely true that Ira- the Iranian revolution 
well, the religious side of the Iranian Revolution, which ended up triumphing, uh, are, are deadly serious in their religious aims. And indeed, in their, let's, let's say, their eschatological aims. Eschatology being a word meaning the theology of the, of the end times, of the, of the end of days, of the end of the world. And uh, the Iranian Revolution has subscri or subscribes to a particularly Shiite version of an Islamic end time scenario, which involves them conquering the holy places of Medina, Mecca, and Jerusalem in expectation of the return of a figure known as the Mahdi, who will fight the great Satan, in this case America, and usher in a, 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 an era of global peace where the whole world is uh, is peacefully and, and justly ruled by the Muslim Empire. They believe this. So what stands in their way is Saudi Arabia, because Saudi Arabia uh, is the state that currently controls Mecca and Medina, and Israel, which is the state that controls uh, controls Jerusalem. So. The Iranian government's entire foreign policy has, for four decades, been oriented towards uh, antagonism towards Israel and undermining, as much as it can, the Saudi state. And what is the Saudi aim in all of this? Well, initially and primarily, Saudi Arabia's interest in the war with the Houthis is to defend its borders. The Houthis, as a, as, as a proxy, so-called, of Iran, uh, also constantly claim in their own propaganda that they will be conquering Mecca and Medina. Uh, and most importantly, from the point of view of Saudi Arabia, when they allied with Ali Abdullah Saleh and the military that remained loyal to him and conquered Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, they got under, they, they were able to take into their possession uh, Yemen's enormous arsenal of Scud missiles. This was the first time in history that a non-state actor had acquired Scud missiles. Scud missiles are serious. They have uh, very long, you know, 1,500 kilometer uh, ranges, meaning that suddenly Mecca, Medina, Riyadh were laid open to attack. So Saudi Arabia's goal in this is 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 essentially and initially defensive. The, the Houthis opposed them for religious reasons. They got a hold of extremely dangerous weaponry and they pointed them at Saudi Arabia. And with these newly acquired Scud missiles, what are the main targets? What are they going to be aiming at to hurt Saudi Arabia? Well, that is a very fascinating question. And um, it's not, not one that is often raised. Obviously, civilian targets are, are a possibility. I mean, the, the Houthis have certainly fired uh, rockets, not Scud missiles but rockets uh, into Saudi cities uh, nearer the border, killing civilians. They have launched some Scud missiles, most of which have been intercepted by uh, Saudi Arabia's sophisticated patri Patriot uh, missile defense system. But the primary threat from the perspective of the Saudis is that the Houthis and their Scud missiles could target the the chain of desalination plants that stretch up the west coast of Saudi Arabia. This take this. We have to go back a, a few decades to put this into context. Saudi Arabia has no rivers. If you look at the map of the map, if you look at a map of the Arabian Peninsula, you will notice that there is no blue on it. The Arabian Peninsula is unique. There is no uh, water there. No rivers. No lakes. So. Saudi Arabia, a country of nearly 30 million people, the size almost of Western Europe, is, is always facing an existential threat that it has no water. 
yeah, or the early decades of uh, of the kingdom in the 70s and 80s, a chain of um, desalination plants were created on the east coast of Saudi Arabia, uh, along on the Persian Gulf. But following the um, Iranian Revolution and the rise to power of the Ayatollah Khomeini, which became very antagonistic to Saudi Arabia, the then King Fahad of Saudi Arabia realized that his desalination plants were open to attack. So he built a huge number of desalination plants up the west coast, far enough away from Iranian missiles, no longer to be a threat. Well, now that the Houthis have Scud missiles and they're allied to Iran, both coasts lay open to Iranian attack. And if and should the Iranians successfully knock out the kingdom's chain of desalination plants on both coasts, it's just a matter of days before the entire kingdom would collapse into total anarchy because people lacking water, they go crazy uh, and there would be massive instability and the government would be brought down and that would be bad for not just the region, it would be bad for the whole world. And this is not just about the land, this is also about the sea routes, particularly the choke points to the southwest and southeast of uh, Saudi Arabia, is that correct? Yes. So the Strait of Hormuz famously is the entrance into the Persian Gulf and Iran semi-controls the state of Hormuz along with the state of Oman, uh, Oman. And, uh, but since the revolution, the, they've always had that card to play, um, the, that they could shut down the Strait of Hormuz, they could, they could limit traffic in and out of the Persian Gulf, that would be terrible for oil shipments. Now the other side of the other corner of the Arabian Peninsula is a, is a strait called the Bab al Menda, which is the in, which is the strait into the Red Sea. When the Houthis conquered Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, and then moved their forces south, they were able to conquer the Bab al Menda, which they held for about seven months before the Arab coalition liberated it. That was immensely threatening to the world order because now Iran, uh, a, a troublesome state actor, could control both the Strait, uh, uh, strait of Hormuz and the Bab al-Mendeb, uh, through which the, um, the maj- a huge amount of the, of the world's uh, shipping passes, especially oil on its way to Europe. Um, and so having control of both the Strait of Hormuz and the Bab al-Mendeb gave it, the Iranian state a sort of chokehold on the global economy. Um, greatly increasing its leverage in the world. And this is something that the world community could not allow, which is why when the Arab coalition was formed and entered into the civil war on the side of the legitimate government, the UN Security Council authorized that um, that participation in the civil war to, to pr- protect Babel Mendeb and in general protect global shipping interests and the global economy. If these straits were to be closed off, what would that do to, let's say, the price of oil? Well, I, I can't tell you specifically what that what the price of oil, what, how that would uh, the consequences it would have on the price of oil. But I can tell you it would cause the price of oil to go up, um, and the entire global economy is still more or less pegged to the price of oil. Oil doesn't just power our automobiles; oil powers the entire global economy. But it's not just the price of oil; it's it's essentially also just a geopolitical game. Iran, should it control directly or indirectly both of those straits, it would simply become a more powerful actor. It would be able to extract greater concessions from the United States, from the EU, from the Saudi Arabia in general. It would increase its power exponentially. And where does the United States sit in all of this? The USA, from the very beginning, 
has supported Saudi Arabia and the Arab coalition's intervention on behalf of the legitimate Yemeni government. Uh, as I said before, the UN Security Council also uh, has supported this, this uh, effort. There have been criticisms along the way, obviously, the, uh, the extent to which the Arab coalition has contributed to the humanitarian crisis in Yemen uh, has been criticized by America and other uh, world leaders. In terms of military assistance, America uh, and indeed Great Britain, uh, both of them provide extremely vital uh, logistics and intelligence uh, information to the Arab coalition based primarily in the uh, air base in Khamis Mushaid in the south of Saudi Arabia, where a British and American uh, Air Force officers and other forms of expertise help the Arab coalition to coordinate its air attacks uh, against Houthi targets in Yemen. Uh, obviously, America and Great Britain as well have also sold a lot of advanced weaponry to Saudi Arabia. This has given rise to criticisms from human rights organizations and other such groups uh, saying that uh, Western states should not be selling Saudi Arabia these weapons because these weapons in many instances have ended up killing civilian um, targets or civilians in general, uh, which uh, is contrary to the dictates of international law, of course. So there has been some crit criticism there, but in general, the United States is a, a partner of Saudi Arabia in this effort. Well, peace talks have just started in Jeddah between the STC, the Southern Transitional Council, uh, and the Hadi government, the UN-recognized government of Yemen. Do you have high hopes for these talks, and do you think it might bring a peaceful conclusion to this war? Yes, well, in fact, the peace talks uh, recently uh, ended with uh, the signing of an agreement between the STC, which ultimately seeks uh, independence for South Yemen, and the uh, legitimate government of Ab Abdurabu Mansour Hadi, uh, who is backed by the Saudis and the, other, the rest of the Arab coalition. Um, for some time, there were major tensions between the STC and the Hadi government, which was preventing the coalition from prosecuting the war against the Houthis uh, as, as uh, efficiently as they would have wished. So the last thing the Saudis want is for there to be division on their own side. So uh, in August, the STC actually took over the government in Aden uh, and accused President Hadi of links to Islamists and uh, basically said they no longer wanted anything to do with him. Uh, uh, and then the Saudis brokered this uh, peace, these peace talks in Jeddah between Hadi and the STC. And it does seem that they have agreed for the time being really to set their content, the contentious issues aside, uh, to agree to ignore the question of Saudi, of, uh, I beg your pardon, of South Yemen independence for the time being, and to present once again a united front against the Houthis. This doesn't really solve anything at all. It just It's an alliance between the two people who are fighting for the South, but the Houthis are the main combatants. So effectively, you know, the major players are still there. It just It's two minor players teaming up. This is a classic Yemeni uh, fudge, it seems to me. It's sort of kicking the can down the road. Yemen has never been unified politically properly. Certainly the South, uh, ever since in, it, it officially unified with the North in 1990, has not been particularly uh, comfortable with its position in a united Yemen. There, the, the calls to separate, uh, a movement to separate from the north has been going on for a long time. Um, 
the best that the Hadi government and the Saudi coalition uh, are able to do really is to suggest that when they finally sort out the problem with the Houthis, which may include uh, the Houthis in some kind of power sharing agreement in the end, the best they can promise is that in future there'll be some sort of federal solution for a united Yemen, which would give the southern provinces or perhaps the south as a whole much greater autonomy. Whether that will uh, satisfy the STCs, whose ambition really is to become independent again, is anyone's guess. Uh, but in the short term, this is a win for the coalition. Uh, they can now present a united front again uh, against the Houthis. Yemen has become a no-win quagmire, with only a small ray of light at the end of a very long tunnel. Even if the players change, the geopolitics will stay the same. Iran will have a proxy control on two of the most important maritime choke points in the world, as well as be in a situation to launch a flurry of Scud missiles against Saudi Arabia's only water supply. Desalination plants take years to build, and if the Houthis have control, then they could all be destroyed in minutes, plunging the country into complete anarchy. Now, when Saudi goes, the world economy goes. Even just one rocket attack against one oil facility sent the price of petrol here in Australia up 15 cents a litre overnight. Can we imagine what would happen if the whole country imploded? through a lack of water once they blow through their 30-day reserve. But surely just continuing the fighting can't be good either, with hundreds of thousands dying from the bombs and the disease. The Saudis don't have the manpower to retake Sana'a, and the Houthis don't show signs of giving up. Even with these peace talks, there is still a whole bunch of problems like Al-Qaeda, who owns Hudaydah, and the Houthis that aren't being addressed. Some people may have optimism on this one, but I don't share the same feeling. The situation may change, but the fundamentals remain the same, and the fundamentals aren't stacked in our favor. Thank you so much for listening to The Red Line. We couldn't do this show without your listenership. A huge thank you to all the guests who participated in this episode. You can check out Helen's amazing collection of books on Amazon. I highly recommend you check out Yemen in Crisis, as it is the gold standard on this subject. You can read Laura's work on her website or follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Kasinov. So that's K-A-S-I-N-O-F. As for Thomas, I recommend you check him and his buttery voice out on the amazing Conflicted series all about the Middle East. If you like this show, you will love Conflicted. Very similar premise. It opened my eyes to a huge amount of research for the Middle East, and I can honestly say it is some of the best listening I've, I've listened to all year. You can also follow him on Twitter at SmallTom with an H in the Tom. You can support us here at The Red Line through our Patreon, which is linked on our Facebook at The Red Line Pod, or follow us on Twitter under the same username. You can also follow myself on Twitter at, at SpellingExpert with one L. Liking and rating the episodes are a huge help for us here at the show, and it helps us get this to as many people as possible. But in any case, thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back next fortnight with another international episode. But for now, as they say in Yemen, Wadi Yaksadiki.